0: To Peace in Their Time, Episode 38, Polish Reboot. Today, for the next leg of the Central European Tour, we're covering where the war eventually kicks off in Europe, Poland. The reborn nation of Poland during this era was a whole other ballgame compared to the many countries I'll be covering in this Central European miniseries. It comprised a large physical area with a population base comparable to some of the other major players on the continent and during the early modern era before the 1700s, it had enjoyed being one of those major players. After having merged with the Duchy of Lithuania, the combined Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth governed over most of modern Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, Belarus, Ukraine, and parts of western Russia. Two big problems made Poland an especially unlucky nation, though, and doomed it to being a much-lamented historical victim. One, its geography was ill-defined, with hardly any natural frontiers to the east and west. Just the Baltic Sea to the north, and the Carpathian mountains to the south. Which might not have been a deal-breaker had it not been for the other problem, its rough neighbors. Surrounding what had been the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth was the Russian and Austrian empires and the Kingdom of Prussia. This trio on three separate occasions got together and progressively dismembered the Commonwealth between them, with the last one happening concurrently to the French Revolution. The Polish people became subjects split across three national boundaries, and while other peoples dreamed of unification, the Poles dreamed of simple independence. But what that independence would look like was an unknown up until the conquering empires started falling apart themselves. Before World War I, the majority of Poland had fallen to the Russian Empire, which had turned its share of the country into a fairly industrialized region. And it was from bases in cities like Warsaw and Lodz that Polish revolutionaries plotted and agitated for an independent state. Unfortunately for them, the Russian authorities were also the sternest of the occupiers and waged an effective and active campaign to clamp down on Polish resistance. One very notable Polish patriot was Joseph Pilsudski who found his activities constantly placed him in the crosshairs of the authorities. Realizing that he wasn't making any progress in Russian Poland, and that the Empire was on track for a war with its neighbors, he traveled to Austrian Poland, called Galicia, and proceeded to set up a private army with an eye towards invading the Russian share of Poland. When war did break out, he placed himself at the service of the Habsburg Army. During World War I, lands inhabited by the Polish people became the center of action on the Eastern Front. In all three empires, the various factions of Polish political groups began jockeying for influence and the ability to speak on behalf of the Polish people. The three empires also made efforts to mobilize Poles to fight on their behalf. Pilsudski helped form what were called the Polish Legions that fought for the Austrians. His rivals back in the Russian sector, led by a man named Roman Damowski, set up their own legions to fight up after Russia, and the Germans recruited Poles as garrison units once they had conquered the Russian portions. Heck, even the Entente set up their own Polish units, composed of expats, immigrants, and the odd prisoner of war that had fallen into their hands. Almost two million Poles would come under arms in the opposing alliances, with the hope that upon the victory of one group, that some form of autonomy would be gifted by the victors. The question of independence became extremely pressing by the end of the war. The Russians were in full retreat in the East, and the Germans and Austrians were masters of Poland, something Posutski, even as their agent, had hoped to avoid, fearing becoming a pawn of the Central Powers. There were back-and-forth proposals about what to do with Poland, some suggesting the Russian parts simply be split between the two Central Powers, others allowing some independent state based on those same Russian parts. The Germans and Austrians themselves were uninterested in turning over their own Polish lands in favor of a new Polish state. The actual Polish leaders on the ground were increasingly perturbed as these deliberations did not include them at all. Pesuki himself ran afoul of his benefactors after the Austrians decided to transfer his legions over to German control. Knowing the Germans were far more dangerous and domineering masters than the Austrians, he refused the transfer and was jailed as a result. His men followed his lead and refused as well, which led them to be interned in camps. By this late stage, too, the Entente was making public shows of support for an independent Polish state at the expense of all three empires, something they had avoided initially to prevent alienating their Russian allies. But with the whole Russian Revolution, that wasn't as much of an issue as before. The situation came to a head at the moment of collapse for the Central Powers in the fall of 1918. In October, the Habsburg Army in the East dissolved itself and simply withdrew back to their respective homelands. All across southern Poland, there was no longer state backing for the local officialdom, and ad hoc governments were set up. Upon their armistice in November, the Germans turned over authority in occupied Poland to their local collaborators and evacuated within a few days. Hilsudski was installed by this group, and he was quickly recognized as the provisional leader of Poland. Inside a month, he had gone from an imprisoned former client of two kaisers to the leader of his reborn nation. This turnaround was unforeseen and raised a lot of awkward questions. He still had political rivals among the Poles who were operating outside the country, and the Entente were very unenthusiastic about partnering with a man who had fought on behalf of their enemies. But Warsaw was out of reach for both groups, and Pilsudski had the twin benefits of veteran soldiers and abandoned weaponry on his side. In an effort to avoid an early civil war, there was a political reconciliation among the Poles. Domowski, who had led Polish independence efforts from Russia and later the West, had always been Pilsudski's nemesis, but also not wanting a civil war, he came to the table. He would act as the diplomat to the Entente in Paris which would soothe their fears about Pilsudski's past allegiances and hopefully secure both weapons and recognition of territorial demands. This last bit is going to be very important, as Pilsudski's troops, already in the country, were going to be reinforced by returning soldiers from abroad. In short order, this as-yet undefined state was going to find itself with a functioning army, and Pilsudski was not averse to using it as he dreamed of restoring as much of the old Commonwealth's borders as he possibly could, even if those lands could only loosely be described as Polish. For once, the ill-defined east-west borders were expected to work in their favor now that the neighbors had all fallen apart. Tomowski, for his part, advocated only taking lands with a clear Polish majority, so as to limit minorities that might become restive in the future. But he was in Paris handling negotiations. Pilsetsky was the one with an army on the scene, ready to go. And his first order of business was to secure his own legitimacy, and set up a parliament in January 1919 to actually govern the nation that had previously been split across three different administrative systems. And while he made public shows of humility by offering to step away from public life, the parliament kept him on as the national leader. This was a dangerous hour, and the new government didn't need its most proven leader riding off into retirement. An independent Poland might have been a reality by this time, but the borders still had to be won. And it was in these chaotic days that Poland moved to exploit the great power vacuum in Central and Eastern Europe. From late 1918, the Poles had been bogged down in the western part of Ukraine as they tried to push their claims eastward. After the Russian defeat, the Germans had worked to establish a puppet government across Ukraine, which itself was now trying to assert its own independence now that its patron was evacuating the area. Poles had other ideas about the area's future, and sent in troops. The Poles had the advantage of experienced soldiers and officers, but the Ukrainians had the edge in numbers, which meant the Poles were on the back foot for most of the winter, simply trying to cling to the city of Lvov, which was the major urban center in western Ukraine. By spring, though, Polish troops that had served in France were arriving in numbers, along with their heavy weapons. The Ukrainians were worn down over the spring, and by mid-1919, the western end of Ukraine was in Polish hands. These battles are still a touchy subject for both nations, and serves as a good example of the ethnic problems of the region in general. Lvov was the major city of East Galicia, and its population at the time was indeed mostly Polish. The surrounding countryside, though, was overwhelmingly Ukrainian making easy allotment to either a Polish or Ukrainian state impossible. Polish troops then turned northward and began invading Lithuania, peeling that strip of land I talked about last episode around the city of Vilnius from them, and also moved into Belorussia, modern-day Belarus. The Poles justified all this on the pretext that there were Polish minorities in these regions, and that historically they had at one time been administered from Warsaw but it was also obviously a land grab, and was perceived as such by Poland's neighbors. These moves eastward also put Pilsudski's troops on a collision course with the Red Army, which at the time was busy picking off their rivals in the Russian Civil War. The Poles had avoided supporting the white faction that was fighting the Bolsheviks, but Poland and the Reds could never arrive on any agreement over their border all through 1919, which led to a buildup of forces on both sides. Not wanting to wait for the Red offensive to launch, Vilsudsky seized the initiative and ordered an attack directed at the city of Kiev on April 24, 1920. He had pledged to support an autonomous Ukraine and was supported by some Ukrainian troops, but most of the population was just as suspicious of him as they were the Reds. Still, the Poles achieved additional success and on May 7th entered Kiev. However, events elsewhere had left the southern thrust badly exposed. To the north, the Red Army, under a 27-year-old general, Mikhail Tukhachevsky, had managed to badly mangle Polish troops in Belorussia in May 1920. That bad news was compounded when a Russian army of cavalrymen broke through the Polish lines in the south on June 5th. With mounted Cossacks now roaming behind their lines unchecked, the Polish situation became untenable. On June 10th, the Poles began retreating back home. On July 4th, Tukhachevsky broke out in Belorussia, and began a headlong charge towards Warsaw. With the Polish army in total disarray, it really looked like the reborn nation was doomed before it could get going. This was at the same time the Entente leadership was meeting in Spa to discuss German reparations. The Poles visited the conference to ask for help negotiating a peace, which was only granted when they agreed to the Entente's plan for a much more modest set of eastern borders. The Bolsheviks, though, smelled blood and wanted to go in for the kill, and therefore rejected that proposal. The Red Army, though, became a victim of its own success. By August 13th, its troops were bearing down on Warsaw, but they had far outpaced its commander's ability to keep close control of the situation. They were far from their bases, and it was momentum carrying them along, not any organized plan. Individual commanders on the ground plunged forward without direction, as contact with Tukhachevsky broke down due to the distances involved. Plus, they had become strung out all across the map, and the various units were ill-positioned to support each other. So, despite having superiority in numbers, they were too dispersed to act as a single force. Worst of all, the cavalry army to the south was still advancing forward, but kept to southern Poland and was not available to support the main thrust. Pulsudsky took control of the situation and organized fresh troops for a counterattack. The initial Bolshevik attack on Warsaw was repulsed, and Pulsudsky's troops struck back on August 16th. The Red Army was so disorganized, the Poles simply advanced through the gaps between the attacking units, and within two days had the advancing Russians surrounded in isolated groups. A 100,000 prisoners were immediately taken, and 40,000 more fled north to get back home through the Baltic states. Tukhachevsky ordered the remains of his forces back east in total defeat. It was called the Miracle on the Vistula, in reference to the Vistula River where much of the battle was fought around, and also referred to as a miracle to try and play down Pilsudski's leadership. He had made peace with his rivals, but they didn't want him to take too much credit after all. Pilsudski followed this up on August 31st with an attack on the Southern Cavalry Army. One of the last great battles between mass troops on horseback. The Bolsheviks were again obliged to withdraw back east. Over the course of September, the Western Red Army began to disintegrate, and Lenin authorized a peace on terms favorable to the Poles. By the Treaty of Riga in March 1921, large areas of Ukraine and Belorussia were awarded to the Poles. Maybe not so much as they would have liked, but it was certainly a great victory given how close to Kachevsky's troops had come to conquering the whole nation. The win had not only secured Poland, but had also given it a reputation as a nation that could actually look after itself. The Entente were certainly relieved that the Red Army had been checked before it could arrive on the borders of Germany and maybe link up with the Marxists in that vital country. I've talked about how jumpy national elites had been about the specter of communism in episodes previous and a massive Red Army marching into Berlin in 1920 was one of the big things that kept them up at night. But all these military conquests also created a critical vulnerability for Poland that was going to haunt it for the next two decades. They had successfully taken territory from Lithuania, Germany, and the Soviet Union. They had also engaged in a short border war with Czechoslovakia, but the Entente had stepped in to break that one up so they also had a border dispute with that neighbor. In fact, the only nation that Poland bordered that it didn't have a conflict with was Romania. In the span of two years, Poland had not only reconstituted itself, it had also engaged in shooting wars with almost everyone around it. And while it had been momentarily successful, it also left the country badly isolated diplomatically. The French wanted the Czechs and the Poles to align with them as an anti-German cordon, but the Czechs point-blank refused to work with the Poles and vice versa. Baltic security was undermined by Lithuania's grievance over Vilnius, and the big powers to the east and west eyed Poland with payback on their minds. To top it off, the conquests also resulted in large minorities of Ukrainians, Belarusians, Lithuanians, and Germans living under Polish rule. Minorities represented 30% of the population, and they did not feel any special attachment to Poland or its government. The nation had been built on instability, and it would never find real peace in both its external and internal relations. Not that the Polish leadership cared one way or the other at the time. The vast majority of the political class of Poland was staunchly nationalist. This had resulted in a broad approval of the land grabs, And now that they were completed, this attitude was doubled down upon in order for Polish supremacy to be solidified over the conquered peoples. Pilsudski himself was something of an outlier, as he preferred a more federal approach to the various peoples, correctly seeing that strict Polish domination would alienate them. But he was never able to force this view, and the Polish culture was pushed above all else. This focus on securing ethnic domination, meant that unlike other nations I've covered, there was less of a class-based approach to politics in Poland, and even the Catholic Church was largely sidelined politically. Which may seem weird given cliches on Poland, but the nationalist leadership simply did not want to compromise on who was in charge. And this was acutely felt by the minorities. The largest of the groups were the Ukrainians, which composed 15% of the population by themselves. They formed their own political organizations, which mostly focused on separatism, which in turn created great friction with the national government. Their activities were watched, and the groups were steadily persecuted by the authorities, culminating in the early 30s in waves of assassination attempts against Polish leaders by Ukrainian extremists, which only created fresh cycles of violence. The Belarusians, being a smaller group in a far less developed region to the northeast, found themselves unable to organize politically and were left to resentfully watch as police broke up their organizations and their schools were taken over by ethnic Poles. For both groups, the years as part of Poland were ones of degradation and frustration. Both lived in the eastern end of the country, away from the biggest urban centers, and their already lacking development was not seen as a priority in Warsaw. There is one group that I haven't mentioned yet that was also notable within the New Poland, the Jewish community. There were three million Jews living in Poland, and with the establishment of a parliamentary democracy, they started taking to public life and culture. Jewish political parties were well-represented in the legislature, and the number of Jewish newspapers spoke to the engagement which the community enjoyed with the new nation. Then there were the schools and scholarly efforts, which highlighted the intellectual freedoms enjoyed now that the old empires were gone. But Underneath that surface of vitality and prosperity, there were the seeds of future tragedies. The Jewish community were always, to some extent or another, apart from the main population. And as the dominant political consensus among Poles was extreme nationalism, they were increasingly perceived as an unwanted anomaly. Never mind that they had lived among Poles for centuries, the increasing cultural chauvinism created a new atmosphere of anti-Semitism, That would only get worse as the years went on. Indeed, for many members of the Polish government, the new Zionist movement taking shape during the 1920s was seen as an opportunity. Not that they cared about a Jewish homeland in Palestine, but if it was an outlet for Jews to be expelled from Poland, well, all the better in their eyes. By this simple racist calculation, Poland became an odd champion of Jewish rights to settle in Palestine during these years. Sending away the entire Jewish population, though, was not a practical option, although 400,000 did wind up leaving in the decade after 1921. But most of the minority lingered on, increasingly isolated and disliked by the mainstream culture they lived among. And even among the Polish majority, Poland was not well prepared for a successful democracy. Like so many of their neighbors, the institutions simply weren't there, and the country suffered more than most during the 20s. Having been split between three nations, there were initially three accepted currencies before a consolidation in 1920, established the Polish mark as the single unit of exchange. The new currency, however, almost immediately fell afoul of hyperinflation, as the government was desperate to repair the damage from the war. Keep in mind that Poland had been fairly industrialized in many areas before World War I, and especially the Russian part had been kind of a local powerhouse. However, its infrastructure had suffered severe damage. Before World War I, Poland could have been described as at least partially industrialized. But now its output was a quarter its pre-war total after so much damage suffered from fighting and the occupiers looting the industrial equipment. Then you factor in all the destroyed bridges and railroads, all the blown-up homes from during the siege battles around the major cities, and the destroyed farms, well, it wasn't good. So the government overspent in an effort to get the economy going again, which, while it did cause the aforementioned inflation, it did actually encourage development. Keep in mind that if you take out a loan, then afterwards the money becomes useless because there's just so much of it, then it's a breeze to pay it back. Poland even kind of got around the subsequent currency chaos by phasing out the mark and replacing it with the zloty in 1924, which was afterwards relatively stable. The success of reconstruction efforts and financial stabilization, though, belied the ongoing issues that simply weren't going to be solved during these years. The industries bounced back, but not to the same level as before the war, meaning that there was a permanent segment of urban workers who lacked for employment that they previously had enjoyed, and other sectors of the economy simply weren't in good enough shape to absorb them so they couldn't just go back to the farms. As a consequence, urban unemployment was an issue that would dog Poland in this era. In 1925, Germany, entering a brief window of economic prosperity thanks to American loans, decided to inaugurate their more secure footing by launching a tariff war which was bad because Germany was Poland's biggest trading partner that further depressed the economy. Employment prospects were bad enough that 1.25 million Poles immigrated from the country during the 1920s. And the national government was uninclined to repeat its emergency money printing, so there was no new round of stimulus. To the average Pole, it appeared as if the national government could only creak along, and was unable to definitively address the economic distress the country was in. The army, though, was held up as the only respectable national institution. And I think you might see where I'm going with this. In May 1926, a center-right coalition was taking shape in Parliament, which by itself was not unusual, but was also the third one in as many years. There was a common sentiment that the moderates couldn't form a stable government, and that the left wasn't strong enough to make one themselves. Plus, the right was preparing to launch a coup. Stability wasn't helped when the National Bank refused to lend any more money to the national government, threatening the nation with insolvency. Tulsulski, four years quasi-retired at this point, decided he'd take matters into his own hands. He assembled some of his legions, which were still loyal to him, and started marching towards Warsaw from the east. He was met by the sitting president, who warned him the rest of the army was not with him, and he could go home with no consequence if he just tabled his plan of seizing power. Pilsilski declined the offer and moved into the capital. The regular army on the scene resisted, and for over three days there was fierce fighting, with hundreds of soldiers dying and central Warsaw playing host to machine-gun duels. The situation should have been hopeless for Pilsilski. Once the rest of the army from around the country moved in, he'd be overwhelmed. But Pilsetsky was something of a populist, and often championed the causes of the common workers, which was part of the reason he was marching in the first place. It was in his hour of need that the railway workers around Warsaw came through for him and went on strike, which prevented a quick transfer of troops into the city as the railroads were all shut down. The civilian government decided to capitulate and resigned. Pilsudski declined formal control, instead controlling the parliament in an unofficial capacity with the backing of the army now under his full command. The democratic experiment in Poland was dead, just like in the Baltic states to the north, and as we shall see, much of Europe to the south. Pilsudski attempted to maintain a charade of democratic norms and established his own political group, the creatively named Non Party Bloc. However, this group could only muster a quarter of the vote even with all of its advantages, and in 1930, arrests of political opponents dispelled even that illusion of democracy. Going forward, it would be Pilsudski and his military clique calling the real shots. We will eventually return to Poland in the second part of this podcast and see just how they got along with Pilsudski as an ever more open dictator. But for now, I'll leave them in a place of stagnation, disillusion, and instability. Next week, I'll be moving on to cover a pair of nations that, for years, shared an imperial condominium. That would be Austria and Hungary. Not Austria-Hungary, mind you, as the two will be going their very separate ways next episode. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.